Our scripture reading this evening is from the New Testament. It is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. We're reading from the verse 25, verse 25 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees, when they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and curse of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things, that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount, that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. We end our reading at the last verse of this chapter, knowing that God will add to the public reading of his own precious word, his own divine seal of approval and blessing. Could I invite you once again, please, to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. The statement that I want to focus on for a few moments this evening is found at the commencement of the verse 26 men's hearts failing them for fear. Men's hearts failing them for fear. Let's just take a moment to unite our hearts in prayer to ask God to give help in the ministry of his precious word. Father, we acknowledge that no matter how many times we are privileged to bring forth thy word, we can never take for granted the responsibility that we have. Dear Lord, we cannot lean upon our own ability. 
upon our own experience, draw resources to meet the hour. We need thee to come. We need thee, our Father, to graciously anoint with fresh oil. Father, make us willing in this the day of thy power. Hide the human instrument behind the cross. This is thy word. We pray that it may come as from thyself. Grant that no man will be seen, save our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we humbly and reverently pray. Amen. Since the turn of the 20th century, every generation without exception has been forced to grapple with the influential power of fear. Amidst the remarkable acts of bravery during the First and Second World Wars, there emerged personal testimonies of men and women who learned to live in the atmosphere of fear. And during the terrorist campaign in Northern Ireland, the majority of the population often went to bed in the company of an anxious spirit and faced the dawning of a new day is still captured in its grip. To not a few, fear is a psychological distress of the mind that can impact upon a person's life somewhat destructively. But the creation of constructive and controlled fear can keep a child from danger and warn the unsaved to flee from the wrath that is to come. However, few can deny that the recent pandemic that has left a deep scar on societies throughout the world has in some measure been the globalized version of the mother of all fears. Deeply etched upon the countenance of some of the world's most proficient medical professionals were signs of fear that could not be concealed under a dedication that defies any form of natural description. And with discussions about the infection taking precedence in home, in businesses, and in governments, the level of fear rose somewhat proportionately with the number of tragedies. At the beginning of this pandemic, there was a palpable sense that men and women were seeking to re-evaluate their lives on the basis of the eternal. But as time has passed by, the aspiration to return to the old ways and to the old habits has become more and more obvious. Ironically, such a response has intensified the fear of further infections, leaving many in the medical world as somewhat apprehensive. That is why we must turn to the precious word of the living God, who has revealed that in the last days prior to our Savior's coming, men's hearts will fail for fear. It is now impossible for any man or any woman to deny their familiarity with this widespread emotion. This statement about fear was made within the context of the Son of Man coming 
in a cloud with power and great glory, which makes the timing of this period of unprecedented fear very exact. And as such, it should alert us afresh to the fact that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. However, the Savior's introduction to this glorious subject is worthy of note. As the Lord Jesus Christ was noticing uh, the outward rich casting their gifts into the treasury, his attention was drawn to a certain poor widow casting in thither uh, two mites. It is interesting to notice uh, that which the rich gave is described as their gifts, whereas in the case of the widow, she cast in all the living that she had. At which point the conversation instantly changed, with some expressing their admiration at the outward magnificence of the temple. Uh, to their surprise, the Lord Jesus Christ foretold uh, the temple's destruction, with every stone being thrown to the ground. The visualization of such a scene must have seemed impossible uh, to the people's way of thinking. So they asked the question, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? History records that within less than four decades, Jerusalem's temple was destroyed after the manner that the Lord Jesus Christ had said. To some, this categorizes the prophetic words of Luke 21 as a past event and that they have no bearing upon another generation of time. There is no doubt that in A.D. 70, it was a time of great distress to the Jews throughout the nation. As Titus and his army descended upon Jerusalem, and much of what was said by the Lord Jesus Christ could have been descriptively applied to that time. But several statements take us beyond the first century. In verse 24, we read, about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. This could not have been interwoven into the Roman invasion of the land, and most certainly not into the siege of the Jewish zealots at Masada. And neither could the text already referenced in verse 27 be compatible to such timing. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power, and great glory. This must be the second coming of the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. A remarkable moment for everyone who is found in Christ. But for those who are found out of Christ, their hearts will fail them for fear. In a certain sense, we have had a, a limited prelude into this globalized fear. But what is anticipated through our text is the experience of a fear that is more intense, more paralyzing, and more frightening than that created by this pandemic. The reason being 
is that this fear is in the presence of God. As the pandemic swept through the world's population, multitudes were understandably concerned about their physical well-being. Every effort was made to mitigate the presence of the virus with people isolating themselves in order to be protected from what some have described as an invisible enemy. But when the peoples of the world are made aware of the presence of God, their reaction will be one of unparalleled fear. An illustration of this is found in the book of Revelation, where we read of the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hiding themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? This is an altogether different picture to what can be described as the normal behavior of natural man. In Psalm 36, we have a presentation of a much more realistic view of the unconverted heart as he tries to impose his mind upon others. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. Whereas Pharaoh questioned in the book of Exodus, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? These reactions against God and against his word have not dimmed and they most certainly have not faded with the passage of time. Rather, we are contesting that they have become even more defiant and more aggressive in their evil compositions. And this means that something must enter the rebellious heart of man that generates such a fear that he is rendered incapable of resisting. But what is it about the coming of the Son of Man that traumatizes most of the world's population with overwhelming fear? The answer to this profound question is embedded into the fact that God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. While each attribute of God instantly dismantles the pride and the stubborn and the callous responses of the life that is shaped in iniquity, there are three of these attributes that I believe will cause all the earth to fear the Lord and the inhabitants of the world to stand in awe of God. That is the holiness of God. 
the justice of God, the truth of God, the holiness of God. The moment the blessed Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth, impurity will give way to purity. A foreshadowing of which it took place in the life of Saul on the road to Damascus. As suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven that caused him to fall to the earth in a state described as trembling and astonished. The heart of the chief of sinners was transfixed by the presence of the holy and sin-hating God of heaven. And as we rapidly approach the Savior's near return, we are told in Matthew 24 uh, that iniquity shall abound. Uh, that simply means that iniquity shall be multiplied. It's an undeniable fact that both the symbols and the substance of iniquity have featured prominently in recent months. The symbol of taking the knee at many notable events has undoubtedly masked the iniquitous desires that is interwoven into the beliefs of the Black Lives Matters movement. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We foster a queer-affirming network, freeing ourselves from the grip of heteronormative thinking. This is not the language of a protest movement. Interested in saving lives, rather this is an attempt to promote rebellion against God and against his word. And yet men and women from all walks of life will take the knee as an expression of support and probably for many of them they know not what they do. But when the presence of God is manifested, In the person of his only begotten Son, mankind will be brought to a place of submission that is recorded both in Isaiah and also in Romans. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. There is only one explanation for this dramatic change of attitude, and that is God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. According to the prophet Jeremiah, man is overcome by fear because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. Human expression stands on the verge of verbal bankruptcy in an effort to describe the manifesting power of a holiness that dissolves the earth, bound institutions of filth, 
and the man created establishments of corruption. You see, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. How can that be? What causes the elements to melt and the earth to be burned up? The answer is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose eyes are described as a flame of fire. At the moment, right across the entire world, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wheel because of him. Men and women wheel because they have put themselves into the humanly irreversible position of the lost soul. Only those who are represented in Christ can stand before a holy God not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that they should be holy and without blemish. Every other person will fail in their hearts for fear because they're in the presence of God's holiness. There's also the presence of God's justice all over the world. The orchestrated theme for many is composed on the delusional view, justice for all. Although the ideal may be meritorious in itself, fallen man has proven in every generation his inability to put right what is fundamentally wrong. And this is confirmed as we look at the judicial process that is available in many countries where each court's verdict is open to an appeal to another court and then to another. And even when the appellant reaches the Supreme Court, there are still options for a further quest for a person's interpretation of justice to be satisfied. But there's a problem, a major problem. Natural justice is based on standards that are contrary to the justice of God. The destruction of a child's life in a mother's womb has the endorsement of legal processes throughout the world. Processes that dismiss the mind of the judge of all the earth. And such heartbreaking injustices increase in their number when God withholds the knowledge of his presence from a nation, which indicates that there will be evidence of widespread lawlessness in the days prior to our Savior's second coming. Comparing that day to the days of Noah, the Lord Jesus Christ said, For as it was in the, day, in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. 
A similar words are used to describe the contempt for law and order in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is seen as another template of instruction for the end time. But God never allowed man to continue on his chosen course of self-destruction without suddenly intervening. The opening of the earth's protective shield released a deluge of water that created a flood of undefinable proportions. Man was unable to resist the fire and brimstone that descended over the Sodomite city. As significantly, it was during his prayer for Sodom that Abraham both acknowledged and accepted the justice of God pleading most earnestly and sincerely for the deliverance of his nephew, he came to this conclusion, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Somewhat questionably, the Black Lives Matters movement conclude their statement of belief with the words, we embody and practice justice, liberation and peace in our engagements with one another. Can I just say to you, that is a racist statement. With one another. The reality is that they have not the ownership of justice. Only God can gift such an attribute to mere flesh and blood. An attribute that will be uncontested at his coming. Then cometh the end, said Paul, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. This is justice. Justice without perversion. Justice without prejudice. Executed by the one whose eyes are purer than to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. No wonder Men's hearts fail them for fear. In the presence of God's holiness and in the presence of God's justice. And then we add, in the presence of God's truth. In light of which, we begin to appreciate what the Apostle Paul meant when he said in Romans 3, verse 9, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. For generations, men and women have debated, discussed, and condemned, and even castigated the word of the God of heaven with minds dominated 
by the world's most prolific liar, the devil, it is not surprising that the natural heart is embraced within the bondage of untruthfulness. And yet this word truth appears over 220 times throughout the scriptures. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus Christ addressed certain Jews who boasted concerning their traditional relationship with Abraham about the subject of truth. He said, but now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth. It must be noted that when the one who is the way, the truth, and the life is rejected by the vast majority of the 7.6 billion inhabitants of this world, it is because they have gone after the working of Satan. This is explained to us in Thessalonians, where we read concerning how people are attracted to powerful signs and lying wonders who refuse the love of the truth that they might be saved. The consequences of that is very serious. It goes on to say that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It is challenging to reflect on the revelation that poor, darkened, unsaved, unconverted souls whom we love, whom we pray for, believe a lie. One of the greatest, greatest problems facing this world today stems from the so-called theory of evolution. We would not have what is described as a racist problem if young people for the past number of generations had not been taught evolution. While Darwin was anti-slave, he was fundamentally a racist. And people believe a lie. It's as if the Apostle Paul was looking down through the corridor of time and speaking about something that would happen 2,000 years ahead. But such confrontation with the truth, it's not going to last forever. For in reference to the mastermind of the lie, we read, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. When the advocates of war against truth are faced with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, their hearts will fail for fear in the presence of the God of truth. But I want to close with this very simple thought. How is it 
that a man or a woman can stand before the holy God, the justice of God, and the truth of God, and be accepted of him? There's a wonderful answer, and it's simply this, that he is our holiness, that he is our justice, that he is our truth. That's what Paul meant, I believe, when he said, it is no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. You can enter into Christ tonight by repenting of your sin, by acknowledging that you have sinned against God and in his sight. And you can be absolutely certain that he will receive you. How do you know if you would be received? There is a very direct answer to that question, and it's simply this. There is no fear in love, for perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. When God saves a sinner, he extracts fear from their heart. And just as George was speaking about his dear mother, who was looking forward to crossing that line between time and eternity, she wasn't afraid to take that step. Because perfect love had cast out all fear. And that's available tonight. It's available to those who are in this gathering unsaved and to those who are listening. The day is coming very soon when you and I will stand before God. You will either be in Christ or you will be out of Christ. The responsibility of that standing lies upon the heart of one that is depraved in nature and in practice. If you go to a Christless hell, you cannot blame God. You cannot blame the society in which you were brought up in. You step over into that lost eternity because you have willfully rejected the opportunity to be found in Christ. His holiness, his justice, his truth. That's the gospel. That's the message we trust you will receive. Thank you so much for listening. Let's just take a moment as we unite our hearts together in prayer.
I'm always very conscious as we come to the concluding part of a gospel meeting that there are precious souls that we believe the Lord is speaking to. Some who may well be familiar with the message of salvation, but circumstances seem to cloud in and gather into the mind and create all sorts of obstacles and excuses. If you were to leave this scene of time tonight, you would still have faculties. Yes, it is true, your body would no longer be habitable in terms of your eternal soul. But that eternal soul sees, it hears, it speaks, it feels, it remembers. What a tragedy it would be if you and I lend to eternity unprepared. Please be assured of our prayers. And I know that the dear pastor of the congregation here would be delighted to talk to you, as I would if you feel you would like to say to us. But please, please do not die out of Christ. Father, we ask of thee to do what man could never do, that is, to reach down and save some precious souls. Father, bring them into Christ tonight to stand in his holiness, to stand in his justice, to stand in his truth so that they might say that we are complete in him. Bless thy word for our Saviour's sake. Amen.